It's time for Legally Speaking with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, as we review interesting cases and developments in legal affairs over the last week. Michael, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. Some interesting questions today. I think we get started with the question of when a city could be liable for burns suffered when someone throws, does it say motor oil on a fire? Indeed, motor oil on a fire. <laughs> All right, let's, let's, let's set this one up. You, you would think that uh, a reasonable person would realize that throwing motor oil on a fire might be a terrible idea, and indeed it was. Uh, the, the background here is there was a couple who rented a home uh, from the city uh, Burnaby, and they had rented the home there for some time. Back, it started back in 2005. Um, after a couple of years, they decided to install uh, what was described as a fire pit uh, in the uh, sounds like the backyard of the house, um, and uh, I thought it was a fantastic description by the Court of Appeal of how this was done. The fire pit apparently involved a used tire rim, uh, which the Court of Appeal described as the fire pit was affixed to the ground by gravity. <laughs> so, as most things are. As most things are. So it sounds like they, they threw a tire rim in the backyard and commenced having regular fires. Now, Back in, this is important, back in 2008, uh, they apparently had a completely out-of-control fire with flames shooting 20 feet in the air, producing neighbor complaints, the, burn, the fire department from the city showing up and having to douse the fire. Uh, however, the city didn't do anything else. They just put out the fire. There was a complaint about it. They continued to have fires uh, in the uh, uh, tire rim affixed to the ground by gravity. Uh, and then, sadly, in 2014, it sounds like there was a uh, sort of party in the backyard with a bunch of people sitting around the fire pit, uh, and the uh, the husband, uh, Mr. Bottomley, uh, of the couple who rented the home, without warning, went over and picked up a bucket of used motor oil and threw it onto the fire, which, not surprisingly, I think to most people, uh, exploded. Uh, and shot out flaming motor oil over all manner of uh, people, uh, including a most unfortunate uh, guest to this uh, gathering in the backyard. Uh, the guest tried to roll around on the ground to put out the flaming motor oil that exploded, but very sadly for her, she became entangled in a goalie net, according to the reasons, uh, and suffered very serious burns. That, that's a terrible, terrible image that, yes. that comes to one's mind describing that. Yes, and a terrible Canadian image, if I might say. Indeed. Uh, now, so uh, the poor person who was uh, tangled in the goalie net and badly burned sued both the Bottomleys uh, and, as well, the city of Burnaby. And the theory of the suing the city of Burnaby was, hey, you had some duty here uh, to prevent this hazard, right? It was your home owned by the city of Burnaby, rented to these people. The city of Burnaby's fire department had to show up on a previous occasion for an enormous out-of-control fire. There had been more than one complaint, but the city did nothing to stop them or take away the uh, rim affixed by gravity to the ground, and so these fires kept going on until this incident happened. And so the original trial was a jury trial, uh, and the jury uh, divided up responsibility for this uh, tragic accident uh, in the following way. The jury found that Mr. Bottomley, the guy who uh, thought it was a great idea to throw motor oil on the fire, was 66% responsible. Mrs. Bottomley was 5% on the hook. 
and the city for not doing having done anything was 29% responsible. That was the jury's finding. Now, the city appealed, saying, "Hey, you know, we shouldn't uh, uh, have been found to be responsible here." And as well, uh, it sounds like Mr. Bottomley uh, appealed. Uh, Mr. Bottomley's argument, one of them was that it was not reasonably foreseeable that throwing motor oil on a fire would cause this kind of <laughs> problem. The Court of Appeal didn't have too much trouble dismissing that uh, suggestion, uh, concluding that a reasonable person would know that motor oil is flammable, gives off fumes, and that pouring it on a fire would create a significant risk. But they also found that the jury uh, hadn't made any error in finding that the city was uh, partially uh, to blame for not having done anything over many years, despite having been advised of the risk. And here's why this, uh, I think, is important as a a principle for people. Uh Um, And it's something the jury wouldn't be told, but this is how it works. If there are multiple people who are together responsible for uh, an accident, all doing something careless, which caused an accident to happen, which is what the jury found here, Uh as long as the person who's suing wasn't themselves partially to blame as well, and they found that this person wasn't partially to blame, she was just sitting there with and no warning, this person threw the motor oil on the fire, then the person who's injured can collect damages from any of the people uh, who are responsible, and it's up to them to sort it out as between themselves, uh, you know, who should have to pay each other back. And so here's how this probably played out. This is the subtext for it. Uh-huh. The bottom leaves were 66% and 5% respectively responsible for the injury caused to this person. The city, 29%, but, uh, and the person who was injured, not responsible at all. Now, the city is going to have money. The bottom leaves may have none. What what this will mean is that the injured person can collect all of the money from the city for her injuries, and then the city will have to go after the bottom leaves to try and recover the, you know, 66% and 5% that each of them would be responsible for. And the legal theory underlying that would be, well, look, if somebody's to be shortchanged, right, because, you know, there's no money to pay a claim, for example, better it be somebody who is, you know, partially responsible as opposed to the injured person who's not responsible at all, right? Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the policy underlying that proposition, that you can collect it from any of the people who are responsible, is really premised on that. Um, so I think that's a, an important takeaway for people. And there's also, I think, a lesson in this for uh, individuals other than cities uh, who might be landlords. And if you have yes. tenants who you know to be engaging in dangerous activity on your property, uh, you can't just, you know, turn a blind eye to it and hope nothing comes of it. You know, I think this result would have been the same result if you had a, a private landlord uh, who was aware of the same sort of dangerous, you know, fires out of control in the backyard. Yes. You can't just say, well, you know, <laughs> that's my tenant <laughs> uh, and hope for the best. You may find yourself at least partially on the hook. Uh, and if your tenants don't have any money to pay for the damage they cause, you might wind up paying for it. So I, I find that uh, fascinating. Is there a minimum quantum that must be established? For example, if we imagine a scenario where another party was, uh, say, added to a civil action and found to be 1% responsible, and yet they're the one with the deep pockets, could they end up paying for all of it because of that? Indeed they could. Wow. And they would have to go after the other person who was 99% responsible for it. Wow. However, if the person who's injured, right... If uh-huh. that person was partially responsible, right, yes. then that wouldn't apply. Uh, and then you could only collect from each person the amount that they were, uh, in fact, uh, liable for. So That's the fact right. that the injured person wasn't on the hook here, it wasn't negligent at all, ultimately is going to be very important. 
Uh, and I think probably the net result here is going to be that the city of Burnaby is likely to pay for the very serious injuries suffered by the woman who became entangled in the goalie net. Uh, and uh, good luck to the city of Burnaby trying to collect uh, the money from the bottom leaves who, uh, you know, probably says something that they are, uh, you know, throwing a tire in their backyard and pouring used motor oil on it with large groups of people around it, claiming that who would know that that would be dangerous. So uh, that's really the, the practical uh, outcome here. But uh, I think that is an important lesson for somebody. If you're uh, renting a property and you know that your tenants are doing something dangerous in it, don't just ignore it. Uh, you may at least partially be on the hook for it. Indeed. Let's take our first break. Michael Mulligan will continue offering us the benefit of his analysis and insight. Coming up next, a provincial court hearing more cases using Microsoft Teams, and they've issued a guide with advice for etiquette. We'll get into that right after this. We continue our weekly conversation, legally speaking, with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. The provincial court, Michael, is hearing more cases using Microsoft Teams and has accordingly issued a guide that includes advice on etiquette. What do we know at this point? Yes, indeed. So the Court of Appeal has gone with Zoom and the provincial court has decided to go with Microsoft Teams. Fair enough. Uh, so the uh, provincial court uh, just issued a guideline, both in terms of how people are to use that uh, because people without lawyers who are appearing would be expected to use it as well for applications they might be making. Uh, and in so doing, I thought this was great, they, they issued a, uh, a guide for remote, proce- remote proceedings etiquette. And no doubt this is the product of some uh, experience they've had with the system so far. Uh, and some of the procedures that you, know, you might take for granted in court uh, may not be uh, apparent to people, it would seem, uh, when they are appearing by video uh, remotely. So the etiquette guide includes helpful tips, including this. No food or drink. As in a courtroom, do not eat or drink anything but water during the proceedings. So I've got this image of somebody, you know, sitting at home with their glass of wine on video having their family court. Uh, <laughs> with their very crinkly bag of chips that they keep reaching into at inopportune times. Yes, yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's not on. Uh, Dressing appropriately, this is good. Uh, the guide actually has a link on how to dress for court. Sadly, the link is broken, so if the provincial court is listening, they <laughs> oh, no. might want to fix that. Oh, no. but I, found, I found the information. Here's the, court, here's the provincial court's advice in terms of inappropriate uh, clothing generally. Uh-huh. No short shorts, no tank tops, no muscle shirts, no belly shirts, or bare feet. Uh, no clothing with disrespectful slogans or pictures. And I should say on that front, uh, once in a while, you would see uh, somebody showing up in court with a T-shirt turned inside out or on backwards, which is the uh, product of their lawyer telling somebody, you just cannot wear that shirt into court. Oh, interesting. Right? Remove sunglasses, no chewing gum, baseball caps, or other hats. Religious headwear is accepted. I usually tell people uh, along these lines, dress if you're going to court, dress in a way you might dress if you were going for a job interview uh, or, you know, maybe you were uh, going out for a nice dinner or going to, you know, church on the weekend, something like that. Yes. Uh, people don't have to show up in a tuxedo, uh, but don't show up in short shorts with bare feet. Uh, I think you're going to get too far, and that still applies if you're appearing by video. Very true. Another interesting one was uh, in court, the usual practice would be uh, if you're going to speak, you would, other than a witness, like if you were a counsel, you would stand up, right, when you're speaking. You don't sit in your chair uh, when making submissions in court. Uh, however, uh, that doesn't work with a video camera. They would then be, I guess, an image of your <laughs> you know, uh, chest or something rather than your head. Yes. Uh, and so they've expressly said that uh, sitting is expected. 
Uh, and they've also, for video appearances, done away with bowing. Uh, for people that don't know, it's usual practice to when you sort of go into a courtroom uh, to make a slight bow to the uh, court when going in or out, uh, but uh, not necessary for video conference proceedings. So, uh, you know, don't show up with your uh, bathrobe. Oh, the other one was uh, have a neutral background and try to find a quiet area. Uh, so again, I have this image of you know somebody not only with a glass of wine wearing their house coat with you know kids running around in the uh, background uh, throwing things and eating chips <laughs> trying to make your application for something. Don't do it, and make sure you put your hand up before you speak. <laughs> Absolutely, all, all good advice that uh, that uh, I think any person should be able to intuitively expect to be given. And yet there it is in writing, in case anyone was unsure. Yes, indeed. The etiquette guide for online appearances. It's, uh, it's all in writing. Here we go. Uh, we had uh, the substantial portion of British Columbia's reopening plan described for the first time to the public yesterday. You have some thoughts on BC's plan as well as the Public Health Act and the Emergency Powers Act. Uh, yes, indeed. And the, it was a really interesting announcement to watch the other day. And the large part of it, I think, as you've described it, is sort of trusting people to act in a, a reasonable, safe fashion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that may, in fact, be why we've done so well, particularly on Vancouver Island, people just being responsible for their own uh, conduct, because that really ultimately is what is required. That concept is actually set out in the Public Health Act, right? That's the act that... Uh, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry's been uh, utilizing to uh, issue uh, orders and so on of various types. And in particular, people should bear in mind Section 15 of that Act, which is something which is in place at all times and requires no order. In fact, it probably shouldn't require a section in the Act any more than we should have to tell you don't show up in court with bare feet and short shorts on. Uh, but here it is. It says this. A person must not willingly cause a health hazard or act in a manner that the person knows or ought to know will cause a health hazard, right? Mm -hmm. Really, that's the key point, right? That's how people have to uh, conduct themselves, and uh, we've actually set that out in, in legislation. Now, the other thing which is going to be very interesting to watch, particularly in the context of how those two acts you mentioned work, the Public Health Act uh, and the Emergency Program Act, is that both of those acts contemplate uh, dealing with different parts of the province in a different fashion. Um, it is not a requirement that orders under either of those acts uh, apply in a uniform way everywhere. So, for example, in the Emergency Program Act, Section 5 says, the minister may, by order, do one or more of the following. A, divide British Columbia into various subdivisions for the purpose of organizing integrated plans and programs in relation to emergency preparedness, response, and recovery. Uh, and there's a similar concept uh, in the uh, Public Health Act. And in fact, in ordinary times, uh, decisions and orders under that act would be made uh, by the person in charge of the particular health authority, right? We've heard lots about yes. those things like Vancouver Island and the Interior, Fraser, and so forth. It's only, it's the exception, in fact, uh, that you would have province-wide uh, orders made. Um, Section 67 of the Public Health Act does permit uh, Dr. Henry uh, to uh, make orders that are beyond simply a particular health region where it's necessary to, for example, coordinate action, right? And so pretty clearly that's, um, I think, been a sensible thing to do and has been working well in British Columbia. But looking carefully at 
how things have played out, thanks to all of the efforts people have been making, yes. it, it's clear that there are different outcomes, profoundly different outcomes, in different parts of the province. Yes. And there's excellent information provided by the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control, and you can go there and you can look at the statistical information for those different regions of the province. And we've been very fortunate on Vancouver Island, well, more than fortunate, I think it's a function of uh, the effort people have been putting in to uh, not get other people sick, right? Yes. It's, it's, it's worked. Um, the current state of affairs on Vancouver Island, or the Vancouver Island Health Region, which covers slightly more than Vancouver Island itself, is that at this point there are remaining only two people in all of Vancouver Island who are in hospital with COVID-19. Remarkable. And there are only 18 people in total, including those two, uh, that have not fully recovered. Um, sadly, five people in total have died. Uh, but we're down to, and there have been no new cases, uh, at least for the past uh, two days, as I've been watching those statistics. Yes. Now, that's in contrast with places like, for example, the Fraser Health Authority, where there were 15 cases reported yesterday. 38 people are in hospital. 10 people are in the ICU. On Vancouver Island, there are no people in the intensive care unit, zero, and only two people in hospital, and no new cases being reported. Now, if that trend continues, um, we may have a circumstance where in Vancouver Island, the number of people in hospital is zero, and in fact, the number of people uh, that have been identified as been infected could reach zero. And if that state of affairs occurs, and that's what will happen if the current trend continues and people carry on with the efforts they've been making uh, for uh, a little bit longer, yes. you could well have a circumstance where it would be reasonable to look at the provisions in the Public Health Act uh, and as well the Emergency Program Act, and it may well be that different uh, degrees of uh, uh, opening and contact could be appropriate, for example, on Vancouver Island that would be inappropriate in the Fraser region for example, or in central uh, or uh, this, the Vancouver region, yes. where there are much higher rates of infection, many more people in the hospital, and people are continuing to get infected. Yes. And that could raise interesting questions about what should be done to preserve that. And, and these acts would permit things, like if you wanted to have uh, testing or other things required if people are traveling between regions, those are the kind of things which would be permitted uh, by these acts and both acts permit uh, those different treatments and different policies in different areas, and in fact, in some cases, presume that that's how policies will be made. Now, that of course may have other unintended consequences if you uh, announce to the world uh, there are you know, no or very few cases remaining yeah. on Vancouver Island. You wouldn't want to, you know, for example, encourage everyone to load their you know, bicycles on top of their Winnebago uh, and head over here from the Fraser region, for example, yes. right? Yes, because and they so, would bring more cases with them, exactly. Right, yeah. so you'd have to be careful about how that was managed. Uh, but uh, I think that is going to be a live question and a real policy question. Um, and it's one you can tell that um, is not being, some of those statistics are not emphasized, uh, perhaps, when there are uh, government announcements about these things, not wanting to encourage unintended consequences. Yeah. But, you know, people need to know what the actual statistical information uh, is. I think people are, can be counted on to act in a responsible way. But we've done particularly well uh, on uh, Vancouver Island. You know, we have numbers and things that appear to be um, less than 
what you would look at in a place like New Zealand, yes. right, which has been yeah. reported as, you know, they've got this thing, uh, you know, completely under control. Uh, the state of affairs on uh, Vancouver Island, you know, we've got a population of about, I think, 870,000. That's correct, that yes. Sort. Yeah. Uh, and when you look at that and you compare our numbers to New Zealand and the fact that we're now having multiple days with no new cases, the number of people in hospital is approaching, well, it's two. <laughs> yes. um, you know, we're, we're getting to a very good spot. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're going to need to uh, turn our minds to how do we maintain that and whether uh, policies that could be appropriate in one place, whether they remain appropriate uh, in others. Uh, because on Vancouver Island, for example, if you had a sustained period of time with no new cases and no one infected, um, the uh, appropriate public health advice uh, and uh, might be quite different from the public health advice that would be appropriate uh, if you were in the Fraser region, where many people are still each day yeah. uh, testing positive for it. So uh, appreciating that there may be frictions and concern about unintended consequences, I think the takeaway message is we've done very well here. Uh, we need to continue with that. But if the current trend continues, at least on Vancouver Island, uh, it looks like there's a realistic prospect we may get to zero. Uh, and then there will need to be some consideration given to how do we maintain that, uh, and how should policies in that context differ here uh, as opposed to on the mainland? It's remarkable to say it out loud. A Vancouver Island, 870,000 souls. Two of them are currently in hospital, zero of which are in intensive care. Only 18 known active cases of COVID-19. Given the fact that we are approximately 100 kilometers north of what was described as ground zero for infections in the continental United States of America, that is Washington State, we, I would suspect, have one of the most effective responses probably of any jurisdiction on this planet when one weighs all the factors, Michael, a remarkable achievement by the people here. I think that's true, and I think that is a function of people taking it seriously and acting in a responsible fashion. Uh, and I was pleased to see the, that that is, I think, going to be the sort of approach in the medium term uh, is uh, trusting people to make uh, appropriate decisions, uh, bearing in mind, you know, People aren't, I don't think, necessarily turning to Section 15 of the Public Health Act uh, to decide whether they should engage in behavior that would be hazardous. Uh, I just think that, and it may be something that's even more so in a smaller community like Vancouver Island or Victoria, you know, I think people are legitimately uh, looking out for their friends, relatives, and neighbors and making sure that they do what's required, and we're getting very, very close here. Yeah. Michael Mulligan, thank you as always for the benefit of your analysis and insight. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. Take care. You too. Bye now.